0: He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Brown University with a degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. And he's been practicing law internationally for 15 years. In 2016, Murarescu became the founding executive director of Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. Their work has been featured prominently in the media. In arbitration with the NFL in 2018, Murarescu represented the first professional athlete in the United States to seek a therapeutic use exemption for cannabis. So what brings the man on a podcast about psychedelics now? Well, Brian and I met in a very unusual place, yet very commonplace for 2020, a Zoom call. In my case, at midnight. The call had the title Faith and Delics" and was about Jewish religion and psychedelics. Brian and me were not Jewish, but Catholic, so we were put in the Catholic breakout room with a pastor from the Midwest, talking about psychedelics. This is where I learned about Brian's amazing book. He recently released The Immortality Key, the secret history of the religion with no name. The Immortality Key is a look into the psychedelic origins of the world's greatest spiritual practices and what those might mean for how we view ourselves and the world around us. Brian researched for 12 years, and he was able to get in the archives of the Vatican and check if there are any psychedelic hints, which there were. He traveled Europe to find out how ancient rituals were supported by psychedelic experiences. So, did the ancient Greeks use psychedelic to find God? And did the first Christians inherit the same secret tradition? Brian's book and theories changed my whole idea of being Catholic. Plus, what if our cultures and religions were already based on psychedelic rituals and experiences? And what if we start to remember them? This is like a really interesting topic to me. And I mean, of course, as you can imagine, one could talk for days about this, maybe for weeks, for months. But we tried to talk to Brian in an hour about being Catholic and researching psychedelics. Please enjoy the show. Okay, so um, this is a very exciting episode for me um, with Brian. Do you say the C Murarescu or do you say only Brian Murarescu?
1: <laughs> no, no one, no one has said the C yet. But I, I'd be honored if you. Okay,
0: did. okay, Brian C Murarescu. And uh, first of all, before we talk about your amazing book and say the title, I would really like to say how we met because it's such a modern um, COVID, post-COVID, in-COVID in story. So we were on the call that was had the title um, Jews and Psychedelics, right? And um, so I think there were like 20 or 30 Jewish people, but only three Catholics, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> we were two of them. And we met in a Catholic breakout room, besides like a pastor from Minnesota or Michigan. And suddenly three Catholics are on a call and should talk about psychedelics. And I just heard about your book, like literally a couple of hours before. And I was even thinking like, oh, should I really go on this call? I'm already in my pajama. Like, okay, come on. And then it was like <laughs> the most fascinating 12 a.m. midnight call uh, with so many super interesting people and this is where I learned about your book also and um, which is called um, The Immortality Key The Secret History of the Religion with No Name right that's that's the whole title that's it so and of course since we are a podcast um, which is based on the story and the whole industry of psychedelics um this is what we're going to mainly talk about today, uh, which you kind of redefine, I would say, in your book, uh, and how Christianity is rooted in psychedelic rituals. So please tell us, how did you get to this topic at all? And how did you connect dots that were seemed to be very unconnected for a long time?
1: Uh, well, thank you for having me. The, the, the short answer is it's not. It, it takes a long time. It took 12 years. Mm-hmm. And the longer answer is I grew up watching Indiana Jones in the 80s, <laughs> The Da Vinci Code when I was in my 20s and figured that was a pretty kick-ass job, but it, it's hard to get paid to do that kind of stuff. Uh, so in my case, despite geeking out on ancient languages for close to eight years, uh, I went to law school and sold out to Wall Street and, you know, just became a normal uh, tax-paying citizen, uh, and, but, but never left these mysteries behind. And so I was always fascinated by this crazy hypothesis from the, the 70s about the ancient Greeks maybe using drugs, it came out in 1978, a, an obscure little book called The Road to Eleusis, mm-hmm. which I think is less obscure today. Um, but it's uh, it was this this really interesting idea that um, an LSD type beer was consumed in what was essentially the the ancient spiritual capital of of, of Greece uh, by by the best and brightest of. Uh, of, the, of the time, from Plato to Aristotle to Marcus Aurelius, right? And, and the intriguing proposition that maybe whatever was happening there uh, would be inherited by the earliest Greek-speaking Christians who, as a good Catholic, you know, were all, mm-hmm. were all Greek speakers, right? Paul's letters are written in Greek to Greek speakers. And so mm-hmm. there's, an, there's an, at least from the surface, there's a connection there. Um, and this is called the pagan continuity hypothesis, And so I refer to my book as the pagan continuity hypothesis with a psychedelic twist. The idea being going out and trying to find the hard scientific data to actually prove that one way or the other. I mean, make that hypothesis like a real scientific hypothesis, make it observable, testable, repeatable, falsifiable. And the way you do that amongst other things, in my opinion, is through archaeochemistry, uh, which is looking into these ancient chalices, cups, vessels, testing them for organic contents, and finding out if, if they really were spiked with drugs. And so I spent 12 years and came up with uh, you know, two hits that I present in the book, which we, which we can talk about, which I think mm-hmm. establish a pretty compelling link between our ancient ancestors, drugs, and religion.
0: Yeah, just, just uh, tell us about them, these two.
1: Sure. Let, let's, let, let's cut right to the chase. Let's cut yeah. right to the chase. Um, so, this 1978 book, The Road to Eleusis, right? Mm-hmm. It's written by Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, who is the first person to synthesize LSD, the brilliant Swiss yeah. chemist.
0: Um, Gordon Wasson, we should also say who that is, because it's a very important person kind of being um, a banker before also, right? And just traveling to South America to have a mushroom experience.
1: Right. I've always... Short version. Th- uh, no, that's that's the great. That's a great word. I mean, he's the he's the guy who put the psychedelics in the first psychedelic renaissance. I mean, he's he's mm-hmm. the guy who went to Mexico in 1958 and you know rediscovers uh, psilocybin-containing mm-hmm. mushrooms um, at this Velada in Oaxaca, Mexico, under the tutelage of Maria Sabina. I mean, so uh, we we have uh, Gordon Wasson to thank for all these trials at Hopkins and NYU. And, um, everything that's happening with psilocybin today really starts in 1955, or at least for us restarts in 1955. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's interesting what, what he found there, he, he almost immediately suspected, I'm glad you mentioned him because he, I mean, Gordon himself suspected, um, after he had these really intense visions, um, which seemed to him more real than real, right? A, A phenomenon that happens again and again and again in these modern psilocybin trials. What they call the the noetic sense the sense that you've tapped into the ultimate nature of reality the same thing mm-hmm. happened to gordon uh except that he didn't just take it at that he said uh, he immediately made the connection to elusis which is what happened to me in 2007 when i started reading these psilocybin trials uh it's funny it was my, my very very first reaction was something was happening there partly thanks to gordon because gordon is mentioned in the very first line of this article in the economist right you don't expect to find you know, drugs and God in oh, no. *The Economist*. There was mm-hmm. this amazing article, *The God Pill*, that I read, and uh, it was published in 2006. And it mentions Gordon in the very first line. And I thought, this is the guy I was reading about, you know, a few years ago, the, the crazy mm-hmm. drug guy. Uh, and turns out he wasn't he wasn't <laughs> so crazy. So it was actually Gordon and his reference in that paper that got me re-exploring not just the road to Eleusis, but I was I was reading everything you possibly could about drugs. Uh, and religion and came up, you know, a, a bit short because there wasn't much scientific data to prove it. So in their mm-hmm. book, they basically say that ergot, which is this naturally occurring fungus, that ergot had somehow been used to spike this magical potion in Eleusis. I mean, for something like close to 2000 years, which is which is crazy. Um, uh, and, you know, it's it's hard to find data for that. So I was just scouring these archaeobotany journals and I came across this phenomenal hit from 20 years ago uh, this team of Spanish archaeologists uncovered a site that could properly be called Ancient Greek or at least Hellenistic, very much influenced by the Ancient Greeks and their mysteries. <clears throat> and what they found was a chalice, uh, which tested positive for beer and for ergot. Yeah. It's the very first uh, scientific data uh, for the, the proposition that some kind of ergotized beer was actually drunk in antiquity. It's just, it's just incredible.
0: So, but Eleusis, the the first time I heard about this is, I think, when Amanda Fielding told me about it, the the great, you could say, grand dame of the first, second, maybe, psychedelic renaissance. And I mean, it seemed that it it was a place outside Athens or close to Athens Mm -hmm. where, um, I mean, basically all the philosophers we know, like Aristoteles, Socrates, all these guys went like to have with the purpose was to have a psychedelic experience there, and then come back with the, let's say, the death experience they had had in the psychedelic experience mm. or the life and death experience. and then basically, were um, writing their their works of of yeah literature or like philosophy under the like after the influence of psychedelics. I mean, is this, is this like a too simple way to look at it? That they went for the weekend to, I mean, I'm not going to say party, but to to get high and have new ideas and come back and write the basic philosophy of uh, the European culture, basically.
1: I think uh, Karl Ruck might might appreciate that description. So, so Karl yeah. is the third member of this trio. We talked yeah. about Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, and Karl mm-hmm. Ruck, who mm-hmm. at the time was the youngest member of that trio. In 1978, only a couple years older than me at the time. He's now 85 years old uh, and he's dedicated his whole life to trying to prove exactly what you just said. Um, Mm -hmm. But the idea being, and part of the reason I studied Eleusis is because when you look at it, it wasn't quite a party scene. It was, you know, it was this really sacred affair. Uh, These initiates would march um, a half marathon, essentially, from Athens, Northwest, all the way to Eleusis uh, twice. They would do it once and become like, a first level initiate and they do it a second Mm -hmm. time a year later around the fall equinox and then become a full initiate and it only happened once in your life. Uh, So again, something else that really struck me about the modern day psilocybin experiments, you know, people with one Mm -hmm. and only dose of psilocybin, you know, basically calling it one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives, if not the most meaningful, these God type experiences, even amongst atheists uh, I mean, the basic thing that jumps out of you about Eleusis is that it was death and rebirth. There was something mm-hmm.
0: transformative
1: happening there. You mentioned Aristotle about Eleusis. He says that the initiates went there not to learn something, mathane, which is where we get mm-hmm. mathematics, but to experience something, to suffer something, oh. pathane, okay, like pathology. So some kind of oh, experience. Wow. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something learned. Some kind of experience was happening. Okay. There. The controversy is whether or not drugs were involved. And the fact that we found this ergotized beer in Spain is, is really compelling. Um, you know, we can't extrapolate out and say every single initiate for 2,000 years drank an LSD beer and died and, and you know, resurrected. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot more. But we're just beginning, which is the fun part of this. I mean, we're just beginning to test these chalices. We're just beginning to really uh, rewalk the sacred road to Elusis.
0: I mean, like what you just, I mean, that's what I was thinking when I was reading the book and like listening to a podcast. So it seems that this is kind of the very beginning of a whole new perception of, first of all, religion in general, culture, second, like the outcome um, that people experienced who wrote the basic like books for the, for each culture. But I mean, of course, um, like growing up as a Catholic person or woman, um, <laughs> so does it mean you have to completely reconsider your own religion, which would be, which would be very fascinating. Is this what you think that will happen in, a, in let's say, in the next 10, 20 years? Um,
1: depending on what that reconsideration looks like, I, I think you know, I think, <laughs> I, think, I think, I think religion, faith. And science, too, science. I mean, I think we should always be reconsidering. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, the great part about science is that you can wake up any day and be proven wrong, and that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, you should mm-hmm. want to be proven wrong. Um, yeah. Science lives and dies on the proposition that the, the, the next time a piece of evidence comes along to falsify everything you hold sacred um, is a good day because it means progress. And I think uh, religion... That's interesting. I think religion can exist in the same framework. Um, and this, this notion that, you know, any faith, if untested, um, doesn't hold that much value. I mean, you know, so I, I dove into the, this rabbit hole um, quite ironically because the Jesuits sent me there. You know, I was, I was taught Latin and Greek by Jesuits. Uh, so mm-hmm. these, these were holy oh, men, okay. wow. holy men um, you know, kind of enticing me into pagan mysteries. Um, and I kind of, you know, I definitely went off on my own little hunt there. But at, at, at its root, it's the same thing that happened um, in Central Europe in, during the Reformation, which is trying to get back to the source of what Catholicism really is, right? But um, well, I mean,
0: that's, this is something interesting. I, I, I heard, I think it was on a Joe Rogan podcast, like two things. First of all, that Santa Claus had something to do with psychedelics, but we can talk about this later. <laughs> but, but I think in, in one podcast you said that, uh, if I remember this correctly that um, the Protestant movement took out certain herbs and certain potions or psychedelics out of the beer or out of the um yeah the fluids that you actually took medication with or were just drinking so can can you talk about that that basically the let's say the um Protestant religion was kind of moving religion away from any kind of, Ec- ecstatic, I don't know experiences.
1: Yeah, it's it's it, and you can Google and find this stuff. Actually, I mean, I, in my book, I say you know Google's not your friend. I mean, there are but but there, yeah. there, are, there are some things you can find, and there are some things. you find. Yeah. if you Google um, hallucinogenic beer, psychedelic beer, I mean, choose, mm-hmm. choose your favorite terms. You'll find some really yeah. interesting stuff. Uh, so so Christian Angermeyer and I were talking mm-hmm. about the heinz Heinheits- yeah. Uh
0: These purity. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course, sure. And, yeah. But, but
1: the, mm-hmm. so the purity laws from Germany. Um, and I think it's fifteen, sixteen. They they weren't about what to include in the beer, um, you know, because the, the purity laws essentially say that it can't be beer unless it's yeah. uh, unless it's water and you know barley exactly. Yeah, hop, uh, like,
0: like um,
1: humulus lupulus, which is the, which yeah. is the hop, right? Oh, God. Yeah. But it wasn't the hops weren't always there. The reason that the, the purity laws came along is because it was kind of this Protestant backlash against these Catholic potentially hallucinogenic mm-hmm. beers. The Catholic Church had a monopoly on these infused beers, infused with all kinds of things, like henbane and these weird things that pop up in the literature. And and it mm-hmm. harkens back to the same kind of LSD type, or ergotized beer that, that we mm-hmm. found in Spain and beers across time. Um, we're still building the archaeobotanical evidence for it, but I mean, the, yeah. the, the stark proposition is that ancient beer and ancient wine were routinely spiked with this stuff.
0: But I mean, this whole, how do you call it, botanical how do you call it, what you said, botanical evidence, kind yeah. of? Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that seems to, at, at, just before we I, I got on the podcast this morning, I read this on, on Twitter, like how Monica Williams, um, a doctor who's she's researching, ap- um, what's it called, um, race-based trauma, and she, she was writing a blog post about certain substances and plants That actually were considered always under very racist, Mm. um, let's say, or in a racist context, and were actually, um, yeah. How could you tell? How could you say this? Like, actually, um, people would say, "Well, only black people use these kind of plants because they're so like magic, and so um, they're related to voodoo." Like, so it seems that there's a whole kind of rethinking of so many kind of very very. Stable ideas about our culture that is now just kind of getting researched, which is seemed to kick off to this seems to be the also the psychedelic renaissance. But I mean, let's come back to this beer thing because I think Germans will be very interested in this that their beer once was, was LSD, basically. So um, let's call let's let's say the situation is you're in Elusis, you drink this beer. And so, and do you have any. Research or theories, what happened when you drank the beer? Did you, was it like, a, like, let's say, related to a psilocybin experience? Or was it a very different kind of yeah state of mind you, you were in? See, that, is there any that, that research?
1: Is, that is the question. Um, okay. And I still, yeah. I, to be honest, I'll st- I, I still don't have the answer. Uh, because yeah. as, as you probably and your audience probably knows, you know, ergolines. Um, th- these ergot derived alkaloids, yeah. like LSD and others, mm-hmm. they're, they're very different from the classical hallucinogens um, like, uh, like, like DMT and psilocybin containing species. Mm-hmm. Um, we know, or at least we think, there was this death and rebirth experience, right? Mm-hmm. Now, how, mm-hmm. how an ergotized beer would play in- is not entirely clear to me. As, as anyone knows, that when you start looking up ergot, uh, you find lots of funky things. As a matter of fact, in German, they have very colorful words for ergot. Which ought to tell you about the experience, like tolkorn and totenkorn. Mm-hmm. Um, the, these are not, oh, okay.
0: these the are corn, not fun yeah.
1: experiences mm-hmm. when you're drinking tolkorn. Uh, uh, that, that's crazy corn in English. Um, so mm-hmm. the, the, this stuff was was known, especially in the Middle Ages, for you know fits of hallucinations and, and, and outbreaks of, of, of convulsions and potentially gangrene. I mean, it's not a fun experience. So whatever that ergotized potion was, if there was an ergotized potion. Atalusis, yeah. um, they, they yeah. must have, uh, There's, there must be some chemical genius behind it to produce the right kind of experience that we would associate with like psilocybin today, for example. And I, I still don't know what that is. I talk to all kinds of chemists who have ideas
0: about mm-hmm. what that could be. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, folks are always pointing me towards LSA, lysergic acid amide, instead of LSD. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's a possibility. Whatever was happening was profound, was life-changing. And Ruck says, the culminating experience of a lifetime.
0: But but aren't you all also fascinated by the idea that so many decisions, like war decisions, religious decisions, must have been made under the influence of this, let's call it LSD beer. I mean, this is like something, if you really think what what certain decisions, like, for example, in, in times of... Um, Alexander the Great, I'm just saying this because my name is Filippi and it's from this town in Macedonia.
1: That's right. That's
0: <laughs> but great. I mean, I always try to imagine, like, um, after reading this, how, how the political decision making was maybe also um, influenced by psychedelic potions, that we, but, which we don't know yet. Maybe, well, it's not uh, right,
1: as a philipos, as a philchipos, a, a, a horse lover, as a horse lover. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, in, in the ancient times, I mean, it wasn't just, um, wasn't just psychedelic substances per se, and this, this is always the point I come back to about Christianity, too. Well, mm-hmm. What we can say is visionary experiences, whether drug-induced or not, whether drug-facilitated or not, I mean, you think about, like, st- you said state decisions, and I, mm-hmm. I was thinking about the oracle at Delphi, I mean, we know yeah, that, yeah. like very bureaucratic, like the approvals of state constitutions and Sparta were sent to a prophetess who was supposed to be communicating the words of a god, and and this is how they <laughs> this is how they ratified constitutions. <laughs> I mean, this stuff, and it wasn't just Delphi. And I talk a lot about the pre-Socratics in my book. We've been, we've been focusing on Plato and classical Athens, mm-hmm, uh, but mm-hmm. I, I cite the scholarship of this this uh, incredible. Uh, his historian, scholar, prophet uh, Peter Kingsley, who writes about the pre-Socratics like Parmenides and Pedocles, Pythagoras, and what they were doing were these incubation techniques. I mean, this uh, ancient Greek meditation of going into dark places. In fact, his book in the Dark Places of Wisdom is like. Spectacular. So that they were okay. going into these these caves or lairs, or even in Pythagoras's case, his basement. He built, you know, a chamber in his basement in Italy to lie down still and motionless and enter into these trance states. And if you extrapolate that out far enough, I mean, Kingsley would say that these are the sacred roots of Western civilization. This is where democracy, the arts and sciences, and the university comes from. Is from these these trance states. You know, these mystical states.
0: So meaning it I mean it sounds like what you're describing could be uh, from the Netflix show from Chelsea Handler where she goes on an ayahuasca experience, mm-hmm. lying on her alone in a room, <laughs> like on a back, and just having experiences that lead you to decision making right i mean this this would be like the core the core structure of how how psychedelics were used also maybe.
1: I think, I like that, how they were, I mean, however they were used, there seems to be a purpose behind it. It, And, you know, I use the word ritual ritual in the book copy. I call this some of the first evidence for the ritual use Mm -hmm. of psychedelics, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, especially that that beer in Spain. It's just, it's full of ritualistic elements, you know. Incense yeah. being burned and dogs being sacrificed and and women mixing wow. with beer. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't just a random cup in a random place. I mean, this stuff was
0: exactly just
1: like Atalusis. There was um, a lot of ceremony and thought and and methodology. That I mean, it's like a science of spirituality, if you want to call it that.
0: Well, I mean, since you're a Catholic too, so I mean, if I think about my history as a Catholic person, like you have like mean, the, the the earliest emor- memories are the ones with the when i was like 7 or 8 i think and the the ceremonies were so powerful mostly when the priest was going around with this how, how you how do you call this um it's also a corn if you if you set it on fire like in germany it's 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 Weihrauch. Uh, Franken- um yeah i think yeah and then like the whole church was like this and then so th- there were already moments of yeah kind of when you think about this from from today it, it's really like wow there was a very special mm, kind of spiritual enhancement mm-hmm. <laughs> in this and this and uh, these moments and it was not just like you go to church you listen to somebody you go out and uh, and then also if you if you start the Holy Communion and you get trained for this and you put on the, I mean, you're marrying Jesus of all people, like in this white dress. And it's like like a, a year of preparing for a ceremony. And I mean, if you again, if you look at it from today, it feels like um, that this part of religion is, for most people, the part that they wanted to get rid of because it's maybe too comp- to difficult to experience and in, in the way that you could be manipulated. And, you know, like the whole, like, for example, in Germany, it's a lot of times when, when people um, become grown ups, they they leave the church not to pay taxes anymore. So because they say, I don't want to pay for the Catholic church. And so, but still, then when you're older again, like you've, you kind of start to think about these rituals from your childhood, that they were actually very strong, these rituals, mm. And you forget about, the, uh, let's say, the, um, the rational part and why Rome is so dangerous and what the Catholic Church did and everything. So how was how your personal relation to to being raised as a, I guess, Catholic boy and in, in, in the whole spiel of religion?
1: Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I mean, if, any, if anything, like, I, I mean this, I, I became more intrigued by... My faith. I went to 13 years of Catholic school, including those, yeah. those four years with the Jesuits. I mean, you know, when you start talking about incense and and the ritual and the formula, I mean, I'm, I'm taking back mm-hmm. to. I'm not sure if they do it in Germany, uh, but the Stations of the Cross is, is a thing mm-hmm. in the United States uh, during during Lent, where you're standing, sitting, kneeling, chanting, standing, kneeling, sitting, chanting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with yeah. I mean, the frankincense just going crazy, mean, mm-hmm. we do it for some mm-hmm. reason in the basement of my, of my parish church and kids would pass out routinely. Uh, like, there's, I mean, there, there's a lot of weird stuff to send an eight-year-old yeah. to, you know? And then yeah. my, when I received the body of Christ, literally, right? The body, I ate the body of Christ when I was eight, eight, eight years old. Um, and I, I remember memorizing uh, all, all these questions and answers and being interviewed by the priest and dressing up mm-hmm. in the white, white shoes. Who puts a white, who puts white shoes on an eight-year-old? Uh, and, you know, but, but, but when you think about it, when you think about it, there's a lot of, there's, there's some thought there, which is why the pagan continuity hypothesis is so interesting, right? Um, you now, we do find incense and all these aromatic herbs and these spiked wines and plants used in antiquity in the pagan traditions. I read a lot about the connection between Dionysus and Jesus yeah. and the possibility that these potions could have made their way from pagan Dionysius to Christian Jesus. Um, And when you look at the Catholic mass, uh, you know, I I think uh, I quote a line in the book from like 1918. Preserved Smith Mm -hmm. says when you're looking at the mass, you are um, you're looking at something of hoary antiquity. The the idea that it's hard to, to, to walk into a Catholic church and not be transported back in time. It's true. And I don't mean, yeah. I don't mean 2000 really years ago. I mean, several thousand years ago, because what's happening there is, is it could be the engine of civilization.
0: Yeah. But also like, I think the more I think about this, like the the rituals, even if you remember them from your ch- childhood, they kind of never leave you sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way, but they're they're rituals that you don't experience anymore today. And um, so I feel that a lot of people, who are drawn to, let's say, psychedelic experiences, a big part of this is this that they really enjoy the ritual of preparing. For example, I went to synthesis and then like on Saturday after your vegan <laughs> lunch, you prepare, <laughs> you prepare your own tea because also legally you have to do it because nobody else can prepare it for you. But there's somebody who shows you and there are 12 people, I mean, for COVID, who preparing their tea, like kind of crushing the mushrooms, put them in the tea and everything. And it's like nobody talks. It's really like in a church, basically. Oh. And now then the tea is brought to you to your place where you're going to lie down. and But it's like a total ritual situation. And everybody's just like, whoa, this is something I don't experience anymore. So so I find that super interesting because I think that this whole... Fascination for the new psychedelics has a lot to do with um, re-experiencing um, rituals wow. that people are really craving, actually. And I read even a book this year saying that if there's a complete lack of rituals in in people's lives, this will lead to depression. Wow! So, and I don't know, this is like really far away now from from the whole thing. But I think it's all it's it's all like a whole new look, how to perceive the world in a very different way, I think, these days. But I mean, of course, we have to talk how you went to the Vatican, to the archive of the Vatican, which um, is, I never heard of this, had anybody figured this out. So tell us about how you researched psychedelics in the (laughs) Vatican archive.
1: Right. So again, you know, in my kind of evidence-based attempts to to go through these mysteries, Mm -hmm. part of it. Mm -hmm. Is looking at the the hard science, and we have the, these these interesting hits that we talked about. You know, the LSD type beer and the spiked wine that we turned up in Pompeii. And I was looking mm-hmm. for more data in in the Middle Ages and things like that. Um, it's it's hard to come by. And, and I thought what I could at least do is walk into the Vatican and and try and find some evidence in their in their own handwriting for the existence of a tradition that may have survived from antiquity. Um, and I and I mm-hmm. reconstruct this. Potential timeline from you know, the early Gnostics, these heretics of the church to um, though, folks for whom the pagan continuity stayed in place. You know, uh, I always like to say that uh, the world didn't become Christian one day. I mean, it took it took centuries and centuries in the Roman Empire and there were mm-hmm. holdouts. You know, there, there were still pagan type practices and, and incubation happening in Italy, for example, in the wake of the fall of the Roman Empire. I mean, so for centuries, this stuff was still there all these pagan traditions and I follow them into the high middle ages and witchcraft and this notion of uh, traditional medicine. And obviously because a lot of my book is about women preparing these potions. I wanted to see if there was evidence for that. Um, So I went into the Vatican secret archives, uh, which is, which is not easy to do. And uh, I was reviewing Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the manuscript, uh, uh, basically the indictment against Giordano Bruno, perhaps the, the most notorious wizard, warlock mm-hmm. uh, ever mm-hmm. detained uh, and, and eventually executed by the Catholic Church in 1600. And there's some interesting language there about his views on the Eucharist. Uh, we don't have all the details, uh, but clearly his views on the Eucharist, which he, which he called idolatry. Uh, he, was a, you know, he was an unbeliever in whatever the transubstantiation was being bandied about in the 16th century. So it was at least part of the reason that he was uh, targeted by the church. Um, so I didn't find anything in the Vatican secret archives. Uh, but mm-hmm. what I did find is a good friend there, an archivist, who led me into the direction of the archive of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, which is, uh, which is a mouthful. Uh, but it's where Pope Benedict uh, used to work mm-hmm. before becoming mm-hmm. pope. These, uh, these, you know, it's a, it's a hardline line uh, corner of the church just to the west of St. Peter's. Um, it's this uh, beautiful um, saffron-bricked building, where they have the um, uh, files of the Inquisition, uh, which is wow. I mean, from, you know, from the actual uh, trials. And uh, what I was interested in is finding evidence uh, for the use of these uh, things, whatever that is, the drugs, compounds, mixtures by women. And I, and I found some things. I mean, thanks to uh, an Italian scholar, uh, he led me on the path and I was sitting there paging through this 16th century manuscript, looking at a woman named Lucrezia, Who was targeted by the Inquisition in Tuscany for mixing up wine with ivy, uh, mixing up a special incense and spiking it with her own blended magical herbs, stealing the Eucharist from the church and repurposing it for God knows what purposes, and and boiling up some kind of weird unguent in which lizards were the active compound. I mean, so you know, right there in the Vatican, you know, in black and white in their penmanship, uh, evidence for the use of some kind of funky tradition.
0: So that sounds like witches created psychedelics. I mean, it sounds like a proper uh, witch profile you're <laughs> describing.
1: That's, that, that's what, If you ask like, the specialist, <laughs> that's what they'll say. They might not say witch, but I talked to
0: No, them. I mean today they yes. would say witches. Yes, but,
1: but it's true. This so, is, well, yeah. I was in, in Munich talking to Martin Zarnkow about this. One of the world's top mm-hmm. beer scientists, and he says that women were the brewers. Okay, I mean before industrialization, women were brewing the beer. Women were mixing mm-hmm. the wine. If you look at any you know, ancient vase, I have several in, in my book, but it, you see women adding the ingredients. Uh, so this was the woman's job, uh, and it seemed to 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 stay that way through the mysteries, through the dark ages, into the Middle Ages, and the early modern period, and. Um, during the Inquisition, the sacred pharmacology of the West, I'll call it, is stamped out. It survives Mm -hmm. in the New World. And I finish my book by talking about peyote and alleluqui and -hmm. and these sacraments that survived in the Americas. But in in Europe, a lot of this knowledge, I mean, really did disappear um, for lots of different reasons, but the the Inquisition, certainly among them.
0: And I mean, this um, kind of, you would, say, healer or this um, shaman, uh, Maria Sabina, she was also like the the woman who gave um, the mushrooms to Gordon Watson. She was a very, very high looked upon, highly looked upon, like untouchable. You could say like very old. How old was she? Like in her seventies, I think. Right. Mm. Um, Yeah. Shaman, basically. Yeah. And it's so interesting how in, in the ayahuasca context, there seems to be um, more women still involved. Um, but I mean, um, in the psychedelic industry, not so much. <laughs> so, but let's see. I mean, this might change too. But I mean, I love this one thing you said, like the first temple was the first bar. Mm. So this, I love this because it's so, you immediately have like an image from Indiana Jones where he comes to a temple where there's a bar. <laughs> so can can you talk a little bit about this image, how this, how you kind of researched around this, how this idea came together.
1: Yes. And the Germans, once again, all, are all over this stuff. I mentioned to Christian too. I mean, you can't go very yeah. far in this journey without bumping into a German. Uh, so yeah. it, it's the, the, the <laughs> okay. German Archaeological Institute, perhaps the, the premier institution in the world for this kind of research, mm-hmm. um, archaeological research. They've been excavating mm-hmm. uh, this temple in southern Turkey on the border with Syria I'm sure folks have heard of it, Gobekli Tepe. Um, if you just look up Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, you'll see, I, th- I think it was the Smithsonian who dubbed it the world's first temple, which, which I love. Um, and I threw in the world's first bar because this same German, Martin Zarnkow uh, tested some of these giant limestone troughs and barrels back in about 10 years ago. They published it in mm-hmm. 2012. What he found were the initial um, indications of calcium oxalate, which, which is beer fermentation. So we think, okay. and there's more data coming out on this soon, but 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 we think that there was uh, big vats of beer being brewed at this temple 12,000 years ago at the moment when we go from hunting and gathering to settled agricultural life. It's called the agricultural revolution. It just may be possible, I say in the book, that it's the beer revolution. That beer was the engine for civilization, as I mentioned earlier. The idea that, that drugs and religion go hand in hand. I mean, beer, if it was there and we're brewing beer before we're baking bread, which is which is part of the argument, if we're brewing beer, it, it doesn't mean it was like some pastime. It means it was a sacrament in, in the fullest sense of the word. And based on reconstructions of everything else that was happening, echo Göbekli Tepe, like ecstatic dancing, says the German archeological Institute, uh, a skull mm-hmm. cult. They found skulls with holes drilled into them. They thought skulls were being hung from these uh, megalithic pillars. I mean, if all this stuff is happening and beer is at the middle of it, I mean, it wasn't just a party. Again, it's not just a party drug. It's it's some kind of ceremony, what with the, with the Germans say, for the living to interact with the dead. It's for the living mm-hmm. to, it was a pilgrimage site for them and for some reason to find contact with, um, I mean, we say the gods today they would have understood that as the ancestors, the immortal ones, the Greeks and the Romans had the same, the same idea that, that our dead, that human dead people, when they cross over become gods, become immortals. And you can contact mm-hmm. them to find knowledge. I mean, really, really spooky stuff.
0: So, I mean, but this is also something very important in your book that the, the state between life and death or like death per se, like looked upon very differently than we look, look at it today. You'd, you talk a lot about this, but also like it's interesting how um, people have in a psychedelic experience. They kind of, you could say, I mean, they die as the person who they don't no longer want to be. Which I I, I had that experience, and then they see themselves as the person that they know they actually are, mm. but they just couldn't see that person before. So and when I had I had a, a guided LSD experience, and this is exactly what happened to me after five minutes. Mm. And I mean, I kind of died as the person who was no longer interesting for me. And I came back as, yeah, as a pregnant woman with twins and Jewish and whatnot. So I was a completely different thing. So can you talk a little bit about that topic in your book? Like. This life and death mm. kind of rearrangement of of the ideas that we have about this.
1: I I, in fact, I start the book with a beautiful phrase. That um, one of the craziest things that that's happened since the book was published is uh, a, a cool guy sent me a picture of his arm on which he tattooed this phrase. Mm-hmm. So this 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 is a thing now. It's an it's an ancient Greek. It's an petanis prin petanis o otan petanis. It's this beautiful phrase. Uh, from Saint Paul's Monastery on Mount Athos in Greece, and it means if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. That's kind of the whole theme of the book. I mean, and that, by the way, is the immortality key. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily drugs or a mm-hmm. drug facilitated mystical experience. It's that die by any means before before your actual death. And there's this sense that you found eternity, that that you that you've acquainted yourself with the other side when it matters, which is which is here. And now, and that could be a near death experience, that could be some other kind of spontaneous mystical experience, it could be laying down in your closet for three days, it could be fasting, sure. all these archaic techniques of ecstasy. Um, but the one common thing you see, which is why I wrote so much about it in my intro, is that dying to the self, at least the way the mystics talk about it, is the path towards finding the self. Uh, and that only by dissolving who you think you are, that sense of the ego, and and to the point where it's uh, Bill Richards at Hopkins says it has to be acutely and terrifyingly real, right? You have mm-hmm, to believe mm-hmm. you are dying. Everything that you think yep. you are has to disappear, and in its wake, yeah, you you wake up pregnant with twins. It's uh, it's it's magic,
0: and it's the best experience. I mean, it's a very very positive experience. And I mean it's hard to hard to maybe to talk about this like because people would say well I don't want to see myself dying or anything but it's not like the idea we have of the actual death or something it's just like it's a very different experience but I mean if somebody has somebody very catholic reads your book so they just basically would totally have to review their Um, ideas about their own religion I mean you really can say that because it's profoundly researched you you researched it for like 12 years you were working on it and I was thinking immediately so like let's say 10 years fast forward you're you're the new catholic philosopher and like (laughs) scientist and whatnot so but do you think there could be something like a like a new kind of, like almost like a situation like in, um, what's the, the movie, The Name of the Rose, mm-hmm. where the Catholic Church tries to keep away the new knowledge coming through? Because I can really imagine that really high-profile Catholic that even priests, like bishops or like the Pope. I mean, the Pope seems to be pretty open-minded. I hope he's still there. He's from South America when he's going to read your book. <laughs> so, but do you ever think there will be like a like a new um, yeah, movement where the church tries to make this new knowledge, which I think would be a big change? I mean, in this whole idea of being Catholic, do you think this will ever possible that this will be happen, or is this no longer possible these days?
1: I think it's very possible. Um, and I didn't, it is, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't present this book. I don't talk about it. And as you're about to hear right now, I try and use very diplomatic language when I refer to this mm. book and the role of the church in history, by the way, I mean, a lot of this is just uh, truth and reconciliation when it comes to the role mm-hmm. of women in the church um, has yeah. nothing to do with the, with today's leadership or the Pope or the Cardinals or the hierarchy of mm-hmm. today's church at the Vatican and elsewhere—it's—it's not—it it's, has nothing to do with that. Um, it's trying to show the evidence for a different kind of Christianity, uh, which is what any reform movement uh, really is in, in its roots. There's this concept of ad fontes, getting back to the source. I mean, if—if if drugs, it's a big if, right? That's why—that's why we're using science. If drugs were used, um, psychedelics in particular, by some Greek-speaking communities at some point. In the early days of the faith, in paleo Christianity, then it ought to it ought to mean something for today. And I had a long, brilliant conversation with Andrew Sullivan, uh, who's a, a writer, a blogger, journalist here in the states, uh, and, and a fellow Catholic. And we talked for an hour and a half about this. And at the end of it, he says, "Well, you're not saying anything very revolutionary at all, are you?" Uh, and I think the answer: No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not claiming that. That well, I'm not claiming that yeah. every single cup of the Eucharist was spiked with drugs. It's, it's, not, it's not quite that, you know, that, that Da Vinci code shift. What, what I'm saying is that um, there, there, there is no one form of Christianity. I mean, psychedelics and Christianity are already married in the Native American church with Peyote or with the Santo Daime and, and Ayahuasca. So it's already happening. All, all I'm saying is that it wasn't just the Native Americans and people in the Amazon. I mean, in Europe, there seems to be a tradition that we've just forgotten.
0: Yeah, but I mean the the I mean I have this Roman Catholic background and there is a very clear a very clear idea of how Catholics should be and how this works. There's no room for interpretation for whatsoever. So but I mean um but this is I mean before we come back to your your personal idea about this. So I mean but this is happening also in other religions like we said earlier very shortly there there's an article in double-blind uh, double-blind recently what's called um, Lechaim Psilocybin <laughs> <laughs> which was a great article from um, one of the editors uh, describing exactly also that like Judaism also is getting closer to their spiritual and meaning psychedelic experiences but I mean so you, I mean, I, I heard this in a Joe Rogan podcast that you kind of wanted to stay away a little bit from this, from your personal experience, to focus on, on the on the scientific point of view. But now you're basically free to go, right? Now you can experiment with everything. <laughs>
1: That's what everyone keeps saying. Now I'm free. Yeah. So, was, as many so
0: what is your first, what is your first adventure going to be like? I
1: mean, the, the, peer what do you pressure, think? the peer pressure is just, it's,
0: it's, it's, <laughs> inco- <high>. it's
1: intolerable.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It's intolerable, especially from the Germans. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's coming. It's coming. I, I still think we're at a moment okay. where um, this, 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 this topic is generally filtering its way into the, the conversations that ought to take place at the world's leading mm-hmm. universities and laboratories. And we know that the psychopharmacology has been doing its thing for, uh, in the modern iteration, 20 years. And it seems kind of crazy that we're not quite there yet, but we're on the precipice of something. Um, Where uh, you see what happened in Oregon, right? Uh, with regulating yeah, psilocybin sure. for therapeutic purposes. Uh, people expect the FDA, for example, to approve psilocybin mm-hmm. for one clinical condition or another. I say in the book, perhaps within the next five years, uh, I mean, so we are on the cusp of a drastic change in mental health care. We, we know that. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm close to my experience. I don't think we're quite there yet. Just just give me, just give me a, a couple of days here. We're, you know, there, there's something. Wrong. Okay.
0: But what do you fancy? What, what drug do you fancy? Uh, like just from hearing about it? Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, my answer is almost uh, definitely psilocybin. Um, mm-hmm. For I mean, for for a million reasons, for a bit uh, mainly mainly because of all the research. I mean, number one, it's mm-hmm. why I went down this rabbit hole. I, I think they've developed uh, at Hopkins, NYU, and elsewhere. They, I mean, there's mm-hmm. this protocol. I mean, just you know, it's 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 almost stupidly obvious. Uh, they've developed some kind of protocol where three and four people exit saying they've had this this transformative mystical experience, and I think it has to do with the way they screen their patients. And I think it has to do with the way that they, they, they lead these volunteers through this experience, develop this trust. I think that's a big part of it. What I would like to see is some of our, if not Catholic, then some of our sacred you know, element, the things that I remember from, from childhood. I would love for some incense to be burned. When I smell frankincense, it's probably the same for you. When I, when I smell course, frankincense, yeah. it takes me right back to being a kid. I would love for frankincense to be all over that room.
0: I even have like the mu- muscle memory that my knees start to hurt because you were kneeling like wow. you described on this on this wood bench. Wow. And like and if I do a yoga pose, that's the first thing my brain, where I'm kneeling like in child's pose, like my brain says, well, you know that from kneeling on the wood bench, that was very painful for like half an hour. Wow.
1: <laughs> so. I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is why, the, why we were at the Catholic breakout room. <laughs> But I mean, so this seems to be what's so interesting with with your book. It seems like talked about this quickly earlier that it's also the start. I mean, we have the psychedelic industry. We have the companies like Atai and Compass who are working on the the products or like the medication and the tools to really help people with a, yeah, mostly treatment-resistant depression. But I think you started also kind of a movement where like the whole – cultural review of this of the idea of mental health or the idea of yeah like ritual like like including ritual in your daily life mm. so and i mean i'm i'm sure you you probably won't be the only one the, the last one to kind of engage in this kind of rethinking um yeah religion and 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 ritual so mm, are there any plans what you would like to, I mean, if, if whatever you can talk about, what, what's your next research would be with this? Like, what is the thing you would like to focus on hmm. after
1: this? Uh, I'm, not, yeah, I'm not sure what I, what I can mention, but I will say.
0: No, I mean, just what you ever, yeah, In, you in
1: broad strokes, there's lots of initiatives uh, in the works yeah. uh, involving uh, some of the country's leading institutions and in, including sister mm-hmm. institutions around the world who I think ought to be taking a look at psychedelics um, for, I mean, for lots of reasons, but because psychedelics are this weird thing. They're like, they're a lens um, to study uh, knowledge. They're a lens to study consciousness and they're, they're a lens mm-hmm. to study the human condition. Uh, and what I mean by that is that you can take something like psychedelics, but you can involve like 20 disciplines pretty easily. I mean, not just the mm-hmm. archeochemistry that I talk about in the book or the ethnobotany, um, not just you know, theology and divinity studies and biblical studies. Uh, not just history and classics and linguistics, not just uh, biochemistry and molecular therapeutics, uh, not just paleoanthropology, uh, but but everything. I mean, you know, there, the, everyone can have a seat at the table when it comes to psychedelics. And at, at its root, we're really talking about how to uh, how to revolutionize the sciences and the humanities, uh, which 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 was the goal of the Renaissance, by the way, is to mm-hmm. is, is is to encourage uh, the the full spectrum study of all of life's mysteries and you know i haven't taken them but when you look at the literature on psychedelics in the history again they just jump out as this as this prism uh, to involve all these academics all these great minds and experts and my my, my hope is that by, by combining all these resources maybe we can not just take psychedelics forward but the way we do science forward or the way we think about medicine or the way we think about religion uh, I, really, I really do think that we're living through a transformative decade where mental mm-hmm. health, mm-hmm. Uh, medicine, and religion do not look the same in 2030 as they do right now in 2020.
0: Absolutely. And th- before we go, I mean, this one thing, I think you explained it too in, in one of your talks, like this whole story where Moses saw the burning bush, which is like if you think about it, reading it in the Bible in your studies as a child, it was always like... Okay, but how could he? How could the the sea divide? How could he see this bush? Like, so, like thinking about this in in your context means there were some subsistence involved, where Moses was ready to get messages what he was supposed to do. Again, like a political situation, should he take his people out of the country?
1: Uh, well, that's interesting. Another another political. That's, that's, <laughs> I never thought about yeah. that. Another political determination. Uh, yeah, he consulted the oracle, or maybe the oracle found him. Uh, who knows? It's, again, another hypothesis worth investigating. The one that pops up a lot is the acacia bush, which is rich in DMT. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe maybe that was responsible for Moses' visions. I mean, it's not just the – all the way through the Old Testament, and, I mean, talk about sure. the, the, yeah. prophecy, the prophetic books there. You know, Paul never met Jesus uh, he wrote more than half the books of the New Testament, and he never met Jesus. He communicates through Jesus supernaturally, uh, through these hallucinatory um, uh, experiences. He says he talks about being mm-hmm. caught up in the third heaven. Uh, Peter in Acts is explicitly described as being in a trance. I mean, so again, whether drugs are involved or not, visionary mystical experiences are at the roots of Judaism and Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think any serious scholar would debate that. The, the, the conversation is what does that mean for us? I mean, what does that really mean for us? Now, if drugs, uh, under the most controlled conditions possible, right? And again, I haven't done them. Under the most controlled, responsible, sacred conditions possible. If it can recreate the kind of charisma, uh, the kind of enthusiasm that that was happening in the early church, maybe it's something we can look at today as as a tool to re-enchant a younger generation that has largely lost lost their faith not every Sunday not every Sunday by any means but maybe once in your life like a uh maybe sparingly
0: yeah but I mean another thing in this kind of new psychedelic thing is also that more and more CEOs are doing this to make different decisions than without the experience or they come in the decision I mean they're already kind of uh, kind of um not gonna say companies, but certain coaches that you could do this with as a, let's say, CEO who says, okay, we have this problem with the company. Um, and I actually know know somebody who does this for like um very high end German um entrepreneurs. And they, for example, they literally called him when COVID hit and was like, Okay, mm. I have no idea what we're gonna do. I need you to take me on the psychedelic journey so I will get new ideas. Mm. And it's not, I'm not even making this up. It's already happening. So, I mean, Elon Musk and people like that, they always talk about this anyway. And um, uh, people like Joe Rogan and, and, and other entrepreneurs. But I mean, it's already happening that some Rather visionary people make decisions based on their psychedelic um, experience. Hmm. So it's not even something super crazy if you if you want. Well, so, I,
1: don't think, I don't think so. I don't
0: think so. so. Tesla was made because of an experience he, uh, Elon Musk had with ayahuasca. Yeah, I, I wish so.
1: we all had uh, Elon Musk's uh, intuition or, or Joe Rogan's. <laughs> yeah, now
0: you know why why they have them. <laughs> so, and, and
1: Steve Jobs so. too. Steve Jobs talks. Yeah, exactly. about his psychedelic mm-hmm. experience. Um,
0: yeah apple
1: it seems to i mean in in those cases yeah under the i mean these these are people for whom it worked right i don't i don't want to give the impression that we can all do lsd and wake up uh elon musk i would love to think we could, but you know there's there's something very special happening with those people uh but the 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 general phenomenon is something that i do think can be scaled in, in a safe in a very very safe controlled way uh for for a lot of people that just isn't available today
0: and do you think you will ever call the Pope and say, "I have, I want to give you this book and take a look"? <laughs> um, I mean, he seems open-minded, kind of.
1: What, what, what will I say? I'll say that uh, he's the, he's the first Jesuit to ever occupy mm-hmm. that position, which to me mm-hmm. is uh, personally meaningful. Uh, the they, he's from Argentina. He's from just over this way here,
0: round the corner. Run, around <laughs> like, the corner. Uh,
1: I'm, I'm in South America myself. Uh, I think, uh, again, because of the way that I, I try to talk about this, um, I, I think I would love for this to be an inclusive conversation. I've talked to lots of priests mm-hmm. already uh, and, and rabbis, and at least the folks that I'm talking to, again, because I open myself to being proven wrong and being told that my language isn't quite correct. And when folks correct me, I'm happy to, to take it. What, what interests me is the conversation. It's, it's not even a debate. It's what interests me is dialogue, conversation, about the roles of these substances, not just in antiquity but in the future, and for that reason, because I think this could be a benefit to the church and a benefit to all organized religion, I would hope that that Pope Francis would engage the conversation.
0: I'm sure he would. But one thing just came to my mind while we were what we just said, and I mean, I once had to do a story about uh, Berghain, which is this this kind of infamous club here where people do a lot of drugs and go there over the whole weekend. And I got into a taxi to drive there, and I had to go there Sunday afternoon because there was a special time to do the story at that time. And then the taxi driver said to me, "Oh, so um, you're going to church?" So, and I was like, "No, I'm going to Burkhan." He said, "Yeah, that's what I mean." (laughs) So, and like we talked about this, and and he said that he drives a lot of people around that time of Sunday between eleven and two. So And he said that his impression is that this has replaced going to church on Sundays. So people are obviously looking for rituals again or for like things that can replace church once they grew up Catholic or maybe if they grew up in a Jewish religion, they're looking for replacements for um, going to the synagogue or something. I mean, it seems that it's much more deeper rooted than we think it is.
1: Yeah, and th- and that's another point. I mean, it's already happening. You know, it's uh, like yeah on, on the therapeutic. It's whatever is happening in Oregon is already happening. Whatever is yeah, happening exactly. at that church is already happening. Um, it's the reason I got involved in cannabis advocacy. I mean, you can't pretend this stuff doesn't exist. I and mean, so even though I haven't had it, and I don't recommend that people do it, and I do think that, that these are powerful substances that need to be respected. They're out there. <laughs> people are already engaging in their psilocybin churches and their cannabis churches. Um, so I mean, shouldn't we? you know, be talking honestly about it, openly trying to educate people about um, yeah, how dangerous absolutely. this stuff can be or, or how meaningful, mm-hmm. I mean, really is what mm-hmm. I want to talk mm-hmm. about is how meaningful these things can be based on the literature that I see in the clinical setting. Uh, so because it's already happening and these churches and the urge is already there, I would love to, to steer the conversation uh, in a way that everybody can, can weigh in, not just, not just the folks at, at yeah. the Morning in the Cow.
0: Okay, that was, I mean, as you see, we could go on for another five hours easily, <laughs> what comes to your mind, but it was a great overview, what, what, what your research is about, and I really think everybody should read this book, because it's one of the most I mean, revolutionary books since Michael Pollan, because I think these two books now really really say, or can portray the direction that we're moving towards, too, I think. Well,
1: thank
0: you. So... No, of course. I mean it's to me it's a very revolutionary thought. Like once I got my mind or my head around what this could mean, that things were actually different than I learned them, still I was attracted to certain things in that religion. Even if it wasn't a very beneficiary religion for me. <laughs> like, you know, the the woman was either a Virgin Mary or the prostitute. There was no other role to play. So, which leads us to the movie Belle de Jour, like done by a Catholic director called Luis Bonoel. So there are all these kind of like things you don't really think of while you're in it. But later on, you kind of connect the dots. So you connected new dots that, um, yeah, I think are very interesting to me.
1: Thank you. I'd be happy to, to keep talking anytime you want.
0: Okay, perfect. I have enjoy your sunshine in Uruguay. Thank you. No, not bad. Not bad. Oh yeah. Oh my god. Don't show it. <laughs> so so Brian, it was amazing to talk to you. And again, like everybody should read the book. I'm absolutely convinced. And um, I hope you have a wonderful day in near or in, in Montevideo, right? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am.
1: Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Amina, thank
0: you. Uh, Thank you.